Welcome to the Long Thread Podcast about spinning, stitching, and weaving by hand. This series is sponsored by Long Thread Media, publishers of Spin-Off, Piecework, and Handwoven magazines. Find us online and subscribe at longthreadmedia.com. I'm your host, co-founder Anne Marrow. So I'm sitting with Sarah Lamb, who is an author of several books and artist on several videos. She is a spinner, weaver, dyer, stitcher, teacher. And um, Sarah, what are you working on now? Oh, thanks for uh, having me, first of all. Um, Right now, I'm doing my third iteration of a coat project that I work on. I did a cotton version, hand-woven cotton, and then made the whole coat up and decided what uh, aspects I needed to change. So then I did one in commercial silk. And the third iteration, which I'm doing right now, is all hand-spun. So it'll be hand-spun lining and hand-spun outer coat. And it's a... um, gourd coat, so there are several pieces, so I don't have to re- weave particularly wide, but I need long pieces so that I can cut out all the gores. The first iteration was, I think, ankle length, which is a bit dated. Uh, it started out as the Turkish pattern, uh, Turkish coat pattern from folkwear. And then the second one was about mid-calf length, and this one I think is going to be more like knee length, a sort of swing coat. And uh, I've gotten so far as to spin, weave the lining, but I haven't cut it out yet. And I'm working on, I've spun all of the outer coat and I have to dye it and weave the fabric. And then you cut it all out and you stitch it all together, which um, until about three years ago, when I made the first coat, I was uh, simply weaving garments. I would spin, dye and weave the garment. But having uh, stitched the layers together, I found that amazingly uh, different fabric. It didn't feel like handwoven anymore. It had a more body to it. It had um, a different, well, it had a different hand. I did not put any lining in between the, uh, interlining between the lining and the outer uh, fabric for the coat. So I liked the stitching so much that um, I'm now doing blankets related to it. I'm taking all my old scraps and stitching them to a backing and making blankets. And that's led me to a little bit more elaborate stitching than just plain running stitch. I'm doing a little bit of uh, decorative stitching as well. So that's relatively new for me, despite 40 years in spinning and weaving. I've not been a stitcher. And so just to back up, you said in commercial silk, but you mean commercial yarn hand woven, correct? Absolutely, yes. First I do. And I did not realize this was a pattern. For years I made uh, cotton kimonos, and then um, after you know, making 20, 30, 40 of those, I thought, well, maybe I'll try one in silk. So I used commercial silk yarn and made several of those. And then eventually got the nerve up to hand spin and weave um, silk kimonos. So after a while, I, you know, stopped using cotton and certainly stopped using silk unless I wanted something really fast, commercial silk yarn. Um, And I use hand spun. But hand spun, it takes six months to a year to make a garment. I have plenty, so it's not that I need a new one, but I try to make new garments when I teach in a new conference area or even in the same old conference area. Um, I am wearing the same thing for 20 years because they don't wear out. And so people actually say, if I meet them again at a conference, I say, oh, yes, I met you a couple years ago. And they'll say, oh, yeah, I remember you. You were wearing that coat then. (laughs) It happens often. So I try to make new ones. So... 
you often start with white yarn and transform it. Is that right? Yes. I spin white and then dye it. Um, I, with cotton uh, yarns, even hand spun, um, I will use some accents that are commercially dyed. But uh, for the most part, I spin white and dye it. I'm as attracted to those nice hand-dyed uh, braids as anyone else. But it turns out that um, I'll use those as a background maybe for a painted warp or I'll hand dye a lot of things that go with it instead of trying to match that or make a whole garment out of um, braids that I've purchased. But yes, I do do a lot of spinning of white yarn. So one of the things that I, having known you for not quite 15 years, um, what if, one of the things that I find remarkable about what you do is... Um, well, there's, you are extremely productive, um, and you talk about working in series as well. So where somebody might say, I want a coat, you would make three coats. Can you talk a little bit about mm. working in series? That was never intentional. It's um, a sample process, and um, even the, the Turkish coat, the recent one, I thought I'd make one and I'd have a nice Turkish coat, but I made it and there were things I didn't like about it or that I would like to change, so then you have to make another. And the same with the kimono. I bought a kimono in uh, 1980 at the um, Berkeley Flea Market, a uh, traditional Japanese working man's kimono, and I wore it and wore it and wore it. And as a weaver, it never occurred to me to copy it. But eventually it wore out, and I decided I would weave the fabric. So I did, and the first one was, it fit me at the time. I weighed probably 50 pounds less than I do now. So over time I had to make another and another, and it was, um, there's always something you can change. Well, what if it were shorter? What if the sleeve were longer? What if, you know, the fabric were wider? And or if I placed the stripes differently? So um, it's a canvas as much as anything and if you do the same thing over and over again you become um, able to uh, use it as a um, you don't have to think about how it is constructed you use the construction as a way to uh, design the fabric so for example in the kimono it has a, um, a folded sleeve and there's a graphic image that those folds make and you can design stripes that fit it and again as an example I made one kimono that I thought was quite fabulous it was mostly uh, wine color magenta and then it, it fa faded into a gold stripe at the edge when I made up the garment what I didn't realize was that gold stripe would go right up my back it looked like I was a coward <laughs> <laughs> it was nice it hung nicely on the front it hung nicely on the cuff but it went right up the back so then you start noticing the placement of color and how you can adjust that how you can place it so that it's more flattering or you know if you just have a little bit of a special yarn you can put that where everybody can see it and um, it helps to do the same thing over and over again at least for me that's how I learn but that's also sort of related to something that you said once that I think made a lot of people groan, which was finish things. Yes, that does follow me, doesn't it? Yes. Well, I do think you learn, even if you finish something that you don't like, first of all, without finishing it, um, you end up with this pile of stuff that, you know, 
half-finished things. It's, it's kind of a, a psychic weight. But you learn something in finishing them, and somebody else may like it. And um, if I hated it because of the, or hate is a too strong a word, if I disliked it because the colors were wrong, I could always over-dye it or discharge it or, you know, keep going until it really is just something that isn't going to work. Um, as an example, I have a knotted pile piece. I made a bag for the Schacht 40-year uh, anniversary contest, which was uh, make it on, I made this on my Schacht. And it was a knotted pile, hand-spun silk bag with about 70,000 knots. It wasn't actually for sale, but somebody admired it, so we managed to trade. And I really liked it. It was a laptop bag, so I decided to make myself another. And I have, while I do work in series, I never actually make the same thing twice. And this time I did. I tried to make the same thing. I did it in wool instead of silk. It was slightly different gauge, so it wasn't quite as um, uh, close a knot count, but it was grossly ugly. I got the colors <laughs> just slightly wrong. It was just awful. I, I finished it. I finished the, the piece on the loom, and then um, I tried to sew it together, but it was the colors were just wrong. So I thought, well, I'll over-dye it. So I threw it in a dye bath and over-dyed it, and then that was even worse. So then I thought, well, I'll discharge it. So I threw it in a bath, bath of discharge, and that was even worse. And so I over-dyed it yet again. And what it began to look like was an ancient textile. And, you know, uh, a lot of times we get rugs from the Middle East that have been discharged, have been over-dyed. And you, I know the signs of how to test for that or how to look for that. The, the pile takes on a different color than the knot itself on the back. But, um, and so this is what I was doing to this textile. In the end, it, it was okay. It wasn't the piece that I had envisioned. But I never would have done all of those steps had I not been unhappy but also finished it. So in the end, I finished it up into a bag. Actually, I lie. I made it into a pillow that sits on my chair so that, you know, while it's useful and it's nice and soft, it, it's nothing that I have to carry in public. <laughs> you can sit with your back to it. I can. <laughs> um, and so as somebody who is a spinner and rigid huddle weaver, yes. um, one of the struggles that I have faced is that you know, I want to I want to use all of my yarn, and yet, if I use all of my yarn, and you can see it, it tends to be a fairly weft-faced fabric, and I'm generally trying to weave scarves. Ah, yeah. And and I have learned from you that, you know, what's what's my first mistake there, Sarah? <laughs> weft-faced fabric. Uh, the closer the set of the warp. Um, the more likely you are to get drape, especially for a scarf. You want the scarf to, you want the scarf to collapse around your neck rather than stand up. And weft-faced is a sort of boardy fabric. It's meant for carpets and table runners and maybe curtains or things that need to be flat, but not for clothing. So I do set things a little closer than most and have fewer picks per inch, and generally have fewer picks per inch of a finer weft than the warp and that makes a drapey fabric drapes in the warpwise direction and you can do that on a um, rigid heddle it sets it about 24 at the maximum but you can set them at 20 um, you need two heddles to do it uh, so uh, some rigid heddles don't work as well like uh, the cricket is better with just one heddle um, I use a flip most often and I've used the Ashford rigid heddle as well with the two um, 
uh, heddle holders, I think. I, don't, I think that's what they're called. But at any rate, um, you can do a very nice fabric at 24 ends per inch. So you could do dish towels, you could do, you know, in cotton. Um, I haven't used them for silk. It's been mostly wool. And I did do a silk, um, what's the word? Sorry silk fabric out of it. Sorry Silk has the warp and weft. And while that was challenging, it made a very nice um, heavyweight fabric for a bag. So I really liked it. Although, again, it was challenging because the Sorry Silk itself, mm, it somewhat shreds in the process. You have to be careful how you handle it. So I used, I think, a five dent heddle on that and uh, wove with itself. So it was a really nice fabric. But um, having come to rigid huddle from floor loom weaving, that's the way I'm thinking. I'm translating what I do on a floor loom to rigid huddle rather than starting there. And I do know most people set things pretty wide and use a weft that covers the warp and it's, um, it's exciting and fun to weave, but it's a better fabric if you make it the reverse, at least in my estimation. Well, and uh, another thing I realize is that, you know, Many people are afraid to weave with hand spun, particularly as warp. Right, yeah. I was lucky. Um, both of my spinning teachers, uh, Marcia Stone in California and Gloria Spencer, were weavers. So I never got that message that you can't use hand spun as warp. And that is why I learned to spin, um, so that I could put yarn on my loom. So um, it was never a problem. And also, we learned to not only spin, but weave in a vacuum. We didn't have spin-off, and we didn't have hand-woven, and the internet wasn't there. We saw each other occasionally, maybe at a conference. There might be a weaver's guild nearby. You might be lucky and have a weaver's guild. Um, so I didn't get those um, restrictions early on, and I simply spun and wove. My very first woven fabric actually my very first hand spun became woven fabric. I thought it would be a rug, wasn't weft-faced enough, so it is a uh, sort of a blanket on the back of a chair kind of thing, but I still have it. Well, and, and one of the things I find appealing about weaving on the rigid head loom is that it's pretty um, conservative of loom waste. Right. And you are sometimes weaving hand spun silk on a floor loom, which would have, what, 24 or 36 inches of... Loom waste. Mm, I'm, I'm a little more conservative than that. 18 inches, maybe. Maybe there's a yard. I have no idea how much. I don't count it. Um, once it's yarn, it's yarn, you know, and you really can't um, uh, be parsimonious with every single inch that you spun. It's got to be, it, it, it's just got to be yarn. So I have found ways to use the thrums. I can use uh, silk thrums in knotted pile. I give silk thrums to my friend Deb and she uses them for embroidery and which is now I'm using some of those silk thrums for stitching. So um, there are ways to use it. Cotton, um, you can't, I can't use that for pile. She doesn't use it for embroidery. Uh, a friend used to use it for crocheting, and another friend makes dolls, and I give it to her. So there's always some place to use thrums, and I don't think of them as waste. I don't worry about it. I know it takes so many um, bobbins to make a kimono, and I just keep spinning until I have that many bobbins, and painted it up, and paint them up, and put them on the loom, and what gets cut off gets used, or not, you know. Um, I used to save even the trimmings from knotted pile, and 
there is a point where it is ludicrous. So I began to throw those away. My, the man who taught me how to do knotted pile or loduker saved all his trimmings and then used them to stuff pillows. So I, I realized that there is a limit to the insanity of how much you can stockpile and stuff in corners in your studio, so I don't save those anymore. So at the same time that you have been doing various kinds of artistic series projects, you worked on a bag series, you have a series of woven garments, now you're working on a blankets. Um, you have also been a, a very active teacher and you're doing a bit less of that now mm -hmm. um how has being a teacher affected your your work oh good question um greatly i've i think i've gotten more than the students have first of all um i had to develop a series of samples that could show all the steps and you have to think about all the steps that you go through some of it is quite unconscious at, at a certain point and then um, students ask questions that you wouldn't even ask. So they, you get input from people. Um, and a lot of the students that we have taught, especially over the years at SOAR and conferences like that, weaving conferences as well, are well-educated, capable people who come up with really fabulous ideas and questions, and they have good work to show as well. So it's an exchange as much as teaching. I may come with a particular skill that they want to learn, but I go home with a lot more ideas and a lot more skills that, and, and you know, just resources, things that they have taught me. So uh, without working in a studio, all the, as much as I do, without leaving to go teach, um, I think you kind of devolve into a little uh, level of insanity. You know, you get to the point where your work is um, feeds on itself and it has no input, no feedback. You need um, outside input. Almost everything I've ever done that's really good in my life, I've done because other people have had the input and have been able to say, well, what about this? Well, why didn't you use that color? Or what if you did this? So input and um, help from friends and um, I'd say it's students, but really the people that come to these conferences are not students. They're practitioners as well. You talk about having spent a lot of time in your studio, mm -hmm. and you have a studio that sounds pretty fascinating to to people who are who are perhaps working in their spare bedroom. Can you tell me about your studio? Well, I I live in on acreage, so we had room for an an outbuilding, so to speak. Um, but I moved to the property when I married my husband 20 years ago, and it's a one bedroom house with a living room and a kitchen. So in the kitchen I had my loom and things were getting greasy, and so I needed a studio quickly. So we purchased a yurt package, and my husband built a platform for it, and uh, we put the yurt up, it, it took three days to build, and it is a tent in the front yard, so, and front yard for us is, is there's seven acres and no houses in sight, so nobody has to look at it. But it's red, and or was at the time, it's faded after 20 years to pink. And it um, uh, has power, um, and it has a heater and a, a swamp cooler, so it's conditioned space, but it is a tent. So uh, the first few years, I had to get used to being able to hear all the noises outside, like the squirrel outside sounded like he was in the room, and I'd run outside every time I heard a car, but it was actually across the canyon. It wasn't driving into my driveway. The 
floor of the yurt makes it sound like a drum, it, so it, it, uh, it exacerbates any noises. Um, that the acoustics in the room are pretty good until you put in so many things that you have, you know, essentially blocked all this, the uh, movement of sound with looms and piles of bins of yarn. Um, so uh, yes, I work in a yurt. It's uh, for the last 20 years. Um, I really love having the space. It's small relative to the studios I've had previously. My um, hobby before I married my husband was um, buying and fixing up houses and selling them. So I went from house to house and each time I built myself a studio, which would for someone else be perhaps a family room. And so this is the smallest of studios and that I've had in a few years, well, now 20 years. Um, in my 40 years, this is the smallest studio. And, but, and so I do have to kind of sidle around things, but it also makes you edit a little bit what you're willing to bring in. I have only one loom. I have three work tables. I'm learning to stitch leather now, so um, I had to bring in a shelf for the leather and um, change one table to a, a work table for that I could really pound on and work on. But um, it's almost essential to have a place where you can leave your work set up and, and walk away when you need to. And I, these days, I don't try to push it. If I reach a point where I don't know what to do, I walk away and I leave it set up. And whether I think of the solution at night or um, you know, in the hot tub in the morning, at some point the solution comes to me and I get back to it. But I haven't put everything away and there's no um, interruption in what I can do in the studio. I have no cats down there. And um, it's my space, so nobody else comes in, and um, it's a little uh, uh, full at this point. I'm, I'm trying to pare down, because after 40 years, I now know I will not be doing everything. And I'm, uh, my current goal is to um, weave up all the commercial yarn and only weave with hand spun. And if I work really hard at it, I, that'll probably take me 20 years. So I'm doing hand-spun projects in between, weaving up as much commercial yarn as I can, making blankets for everybody and making big coats and making big projects. So, so much of what you do in a way seems very simple. You do a lot of hand-manipulated weaving, a lot of plain weave, and yet what I notice as we're talking about that is the persistence of it. Right. Is the, the rededication to doing pretty time, pretty painstaking work continuously right, for years. Right, Well, it's a matter of scale somewhat. Um, it's plain weave, but it's 48 ends per inch and pretty fine fabric. So if I'm going to spin all that silk, it takes a year or two to spin for a garment. And in the meantime, I'm not spinning 24-7, so I'm making leather bags. And that process... Um, I'm learning somewhat on my own, although I have taken a few classes, but I know I need to practice, practice, practice. So I am, I'm, my goal is to make 100 bags. I'm making bags for all my friends and forcing them on people as gifts and, you know, blah, blah, blah. But um, it takes that kind of rep repetition, at least for me, to get to the, the skill right. And it's skill building, I think, as much as anything. I did beaded bags for 10 years, and um, at some point that seemed like a sideline that didn't really fit into the other processes that I do. But now I'm coming back to using some of that beadwork on the leather bags. So, 
you know, it's all of a piece. But it does take, I did years of painted warp before I knew what I liked about painted warp, not what I looked at in other people's work. Well, when I was started painted, painting warps, it was 1987, there wasn't much around to look at, so you had to just keep doing it to see what looked good. And so it does take multiples and it takes time and I've been fascinated by it. I can focus on what I like to do because I'm not selling and teaching what I do is easy enough. It's, it integrates easily with um, all the time that I spend on doing what I like. And I think that translates when you teach that, you know, the amount of interest you have in the subject um, translates to the people that you're teaching or you know, they, they get a feeling that you're... And I like to teach what I am doing. It's hard for me to teach something that I did 10 years ago because I'm not as excited about it and not in, enthusiastic. I'm not making new work. And um, I think I have to continually make new work if I'm going to teach a subject, not just call myself an expert and leave it at that. And uh, when you were talking about exploring painted warp and how there really wasn't much available that reminds me a little bit of um uh your work in spinning silk and mm -hmm. you know now um you know you've you've written a book on the subject and done a video and um do a lot of work in hand spun silk and yet um can you tell can you say a little bit about how you developed that skill how you learned oh yes um well first of all interweave played a big part um Cheryl Collender's Silkworkers Notebook. Thank you. Um, had one picture in it of a hand holding a bundle of silk and a silk thread coming out of it. It was a drawing by Anne Swanson. And uh, that was one of the few items in a book about spinning silk. Most, most books have information about reeling silk, but not about spinning. And then Spinoff itself had article after article over the years. Celia Quinn had articles, Rita Buchanan had articles. And then they came to classes and taught workshops, and so I learned from them. Celia Quinn was seminal, you know, in, in how she handled silk. Um, but again, you're learning somewhat in a vacuum. You spend six months uh, spinning something, weave it up, and then analyze what's good or bad and spin a little finer, buy better quality silk. Um, we had straw into gold at the time, and I mail-ordered. I didn't get to go see the stuff before I bought it. And uh, then we'd have a conference every year, and you could see other people's work and maybe take a class from some of them. So it was a gradual process, but it was somewhat uh, trial and error as well. And as soon as I found a way that I could spin comfortably and that I got the yarn that I did, it turns out it was somewhat different than the way other people spin, but it's effective for most people. I mean, when I teach the silk spinning, most people get it, and it's easy enough to do right afterwards. So it's essentially spinning over the fold, but um, it's also how you hold your hands and how you draft so that you're not twisting your body and you're not, you know... Um, you can do it for hours on end or months on end and uh, get enough for an actual garment rather than uh, a skein, a sample. And so you spin over the fold, holding it loosely and, and essentially kind of a long draw of silk, right? It is a long draw, but I, um, I draft across my body. So I have my arms resting on the arms of the chair and I don't move them 
particularly far. They just go across my body and I can look right down and see what the yarn is that I'm making. Um, it's not twisting around, uh, even though it is essentially long draw. Um, and it's uh, uh, not, uh, n there are no hand motions or pinching that um, would make my hands tire or hurt me over any length of time. So I I've simply hold it very softly and I have very little tension on the wheel and I spin across my lap. It's a product of the, the teachers, um, the written material, and a lot of practicing in a vacuum. And what are you going to go work on right now? Oh, I'm working on blankets. Like I said, I'm trying to weave up all the uh, um, extra commercial yarn, or not extra, but commercial yarn that I have. Um, I started, when I stopped teaching quite so much, I thought, well, I don't need all these samples anymore. So I started piecing together a lot of silk samples, a lot of cotton samples, um, with a backing. And then because the Turkish coat uh, stitching was so nice, I stitched all the layers together. And then you have one cotton blanket, and you have a blanket out of commercial silk, and you have a blanket out of hand-spun silk, and then you're weaving a blanket to get to use up yarn. And, you know, one blanket you can put on your bed, and a second blanket you can put on the guest bed. But, you know, by the time you have five or six blankets, I had to buy a new bed. So I am, I've ordered a bed, a day bed, and I'm going to put it, set it up in the corner of the family room with all these blankets. And, um, you know, guests can sleep under uh, 40 years worth of weaving. I just love this idea that you can wake up under your hand-spun silk patched blanket and walk down to the yurt <laughs> and have a, have a day of, of working. Somewhat romantic. It's the, um, the outfit that I wear though is um, would belie any romance. It's the uh, smock with paint and dirt all over it or paint and you know glue and everything. I, I work in the studio in an outfit that would scare the UPS man. Well thanks so much Sarah. Thank you. Thank you.